Let me pray one more time for us. Father, thank you so much for such a rich day so far, Lord, of just fellowship and Bible teaching and communion with God. We ask now, Lord, that you would extend this and bring our minds to attention, Lord, minimize distraction and have our heart set on your word to listen to your good word and to have your commandment transform us, Lord, in our inner man, to shape us, to renew us, to encourage us and to lift us up, Lord, and that you would instruct us by your good wisdom, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been looking at various principles in this text, in this uh, chapter so far, dealing with biblical leadership. And so my heart has been really, really, really tuned in to this chapter because as a pastor, obviously, there's so much that I can learn here. There's so much for my personal instruction, but really for the whole church. I mean, I think that goes without saying, but that we can all benefit from what uh, Paul is telling us here. And, uh, you know, we could have approached this text from a different way. Um, You know, we could have talked about the things that leadership produces in the church or something like that. But what I want to do is I want to I want to continue the, the theme of examination and, 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 and sort of use that as our, as our theme in terms of examining or evaluating the church, because that's what Paul does here. And I think he makes us ask several important questions about what is a healthy church? What does a biblical church look like? And so I want to put these points today in the form of questions to see, does the church have the right perspective of the church or of the biblical church or biblical ministry or biblical church membership, however you would phrase it? The first question that comes to, me, to mind is this. Does the church have a proper view of the body? In other words, of itself. The reason why I say that is because of this relationship between the leadership of the church and the membership of the church that I identify coming in verse 6 when it talks about the fact that this church, Thessalonica, had thought kindly of the apostles. And it says, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. In other words, there was a healthy, reciprocal, mutual relationship that existed here. And so we have to ask that question. But let me qualify all of this by putting this, I think, in its proper biblical context, at least in a sort of a Pauline worldview, the way that Paul viewed everything, and that was through the matrix of church membership. In other words, Paul is not writing this letter to rogue Christians. He's not writing this letter to individual believers that are just kind of floating around Asia Minor. That's not what he's doing. He's writing a letter to a specific church that consists of membership, that consists of people that have chosen to formally identify with the church in Thessalonica. And therefore, we should be careful not to think of this as some sort of haphazard you know, letter that was written in general just to believers anywhere. No, not at all. Matter of fact, none of Paul's letters are written outside of the context of the local church. I think you've heard me say that time and time again. Brothers and sisters, I, you know, in this anti-church age that we live in today, church membership is a hard sell. Uh, it's a hard sell because people don't like commitment, people don't like accountability, people don't like to be uncomfortable, people don't like to have authority over them. 
It's a very sobering thing to be a member of a church, especially, I would, I would argue, a member of a church like ours where there's real accountability, where there's church discipline, where there's you know, elders that are actually going to guard the flock, rule the flock, manage the flock, and oversee the flock of God, where there's accountability between the members within the body that if you're, you know, you're not showing up to church here and there, you know, you're, you're, you're getting a nosy church membership that's a church member that's going to call you and say, yeah, where you been? I'm sorry if you don't like that. It's what we need to do to spur each other on to love and to good works, as Hebrews says. And therefore, all of this is done, like I said, in the context of our participation in the local church. This is what Paul did everywhere he went. And so, number one, does a church have a proper view of the body? Do you have the right view of church membership, the right view of what it means to go to the local church, to be part of the local church? Uh, Many people don't. I I run across Christians all the time that have a completely deficient sub-biblical view of the local church. Uh, Be careful because you'll encounter these people as well. You'll talk to people that make a profession to Christ, and then to really test their mettle, sometimes the only question you need to ask is, well, what church do you go to? And here's, here's, here's a good one, ready? Who's your pastor? And I tell you, my flags go up immediately when the person goes, uh, what's his name? You don't know the name of your pastor? I mean, that's not good fruit, not a good sign. Not to know your pastor's name. I hope you all know my name. (laughs) Just not a good sign because it usually is indicative of there's this systemic problem there. Something is really wrong there when you cannot identify with a local church. And more importantly, when you don't have pastors. I mean, I was recently forwarded uh, an example of people doing ministry online that is very, I don't want to talk about it, specifics, but it just brought this to mind because somebody that knows these individuals, they're online and they're doing all this goofy stuff and they're mocking Muslims and they're doing all this stuff, okay? And, and somebody that knows them says, yeah, you know, I actually know them and they have a very low view of the local church. They're not a, they have a low view of eldership. They have a low view of church membership. It doesn't surprise me because there's no accountability there. And so, and, and, you know, uh, to me, you know, uh, church membership is, is, is so so loving of God to do that to us, to give us church membership. Um, you know, some, sometimes when we do church membership in our own church, uh, part of the membership process that I've sat down with many, many families who have come to us and have joined our church, they ask, where is church membership taught in the Bible? There's some people that don't even believe in it, don't even know where to go in Scripture to substantiate a doctrine of church membership. But it's taught all over the place. I mean, it began in Israel where the, you know, the, the community of faith would have meticulous lists of families and members of the covenant. That's where it really began. And then that ecclesia, that assembly, that dynamic in the assembly of the, of the people of God was then brought over into the church. So in the book of Acts, it actually, actually speaks of a meticulous numbering of the disciples within the local church. And uh, the church of Jerusalem had a meticulous list of exactly how many households were being added to the church. I mean, there's so many scriptures like that. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, we are told that eschatologically, the Christian is enrolled in the heavenly church. And so, you know, the author of Hebrews does not introduce what a church role is. Any, any reason why? You have any idea why he wouldn't introduce what a church role is? 
Because they already knew. <laughs> because they were already enlisted into the local church and themselves. Paul speaks of a church role in uh, First, Tim- uh, First Timothy when he speaks about widows and having a specific list of widows within the church. And so you have all of these texts that go together within some sort of, the result I think is some sort of formal way to identify who's part of the church. Matter of fact, when the Apostle Paul became a Christian, the formal identity of the churches was such that they did not want him to associate with them. They were afraid of him, and they didn't want to let him into their number because, after all, prior to Saul becoming Paul, Saul was a killer of Christians. And so they feared to allow him into the number of the disciples. But it just kind of begs the question, right? If a a church has a healthy view of the body, then healthy church membership consists of this, genuine faith and genuine love. I mean, real, real uh, deep stuff here today, guys. Love and faith. Faith and love. He says that, right? He says, Timothy brought us good news. That's what he says. Of what? Of your faith and love. In other words, these are characteristics and marks of a healthy biblical church. Let's begin with faith because that's where he begins with. He begins with this idea that a biblical church will have biblical faith. Now, what is that faith talking about? In terms of just this letter here, what Paul's talking about is the church's corporate faith. So what that means is that Paul is thinking about the church's commitment to Christ. In other words, this is in a sense a test of orthodoxy. Where does the healthy church begin? Well, it begins by being orthodox. It begins by having sound doctrine and holding fast to the apostles' doctrine. Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. See, you cannot have a healthy church if you do not have healthy doctrinal faith. Everything goes back to that. Uh, The history of the Christian church is comprised of various councils, like the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon, and other councils where the churches would gather together and they would try to hammer out thorny theological issues for what reason? Because many of those issues were the decision between orthodoxy and heresy or heterodox, which means something other than orthodox. And therefore, the history of the church is comprised of defending, establishing, and stating biblical orthodox theology. Uh, Any time that is absent... I mean, if anything, if, you know, as a student of church history, I understand that when sound doctrine is not there, when liberalism and, let's say, antinomianism, probably two of the biggest threats to the Christian church ever in the history of the church, uh, it's not good. The church always tends towards apostasy. Liberalism and antinomianism ultimately led to what was known in the Reformation as Socinianism. And Socinianism turned into basically a full-fledged pluralism, which basically meant that it was a hodgepodge of all sorts of self-contradicting doctrines, all sorts of ideals, uh, even a denial of the Trinity and things like that. Look at what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1. This is how important and how absolutely critical it is for us to have firm faith, healthy faith in the church. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. That's heterodox. 
That's heresy creeping into the church. And what happens is, is that when a church does not have healthy doctrinal faith, it becomes susceptible to error. It becomes susceptible to error. And it's a scandal. It is a scandal when denominations fall away. Um, Wayne Grudem, in his book, Evangelical Feminism, The New Path to Liberalism, great book, by the way, you should get it. In chapter 11 of that book, I'll never forget, in chapter 11 of that book, he chronicles churches, denominations, and seminaries who began with subtle compromises along egalitarian lines, in other words, introducing concepts like women pastors, and how that slowly that hermeneutic ended up evolving into a full-fledged apostate position, even affirming homosexual pastors. It didn't begin that way. They began with a subtle compromise until it led to full heresy. And that's what Paul's worried about right here in Galatians. He's worrying that someone's creeping in. Look at what it says. There is no other gospel, really, he says, but only that there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This is what any church is susceptible to when they are not sound in faith. A deacon in the church is said, 1 Timothy chapter 3, is said to have to hold to the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. In other words, he cannot deviate on essential doctrine of the faith. We just recently had an elders deacon meeting and I went through and I, you know, I, 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 I exhorted, right? It wasn't a challenge, right, Robert? It was an exhortation. It was an admonition. It was just an evaluation just to see are there any theological issues that as deacons you're struggling with? Because I want to know. I want to know if you're losing your grip on, let's say, egalitarianism. Let's say the issue of the orthodox doctrine of hell. Are you losing your grip on some of these issues? We can't. We can't because the foundation of the church is at stake. As a matter of fact, when, this church, when churches go this way, they are on the cusp of being apostate. Look at how complicated this gets. Um, even as we think about how a church, not only does it need faith, but it also needs love. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 is interesting because like the Galatians, they also, here in uh, Revelation 2 verses 1 through 7, here you're dealing with another church, namely Ephesus, where Jesus Christ himself is confronting this church. And he's confronting them, and you guys all know what it says. They have left their first love, right? And they have become susceptible to error. And if they don't repent, then they will lose their candlestick, which means their symbol of blessing, the symbol of the Spirit, the symbol of the anointing, the symbol of God's blessing upon that church, and the life of God, the light of God in that church will be removed from them. Wow. Uh, it's amazing to think that Jesus himself said this. Revelation 2.1 says, The angel of the church of Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have, endure, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary but all, but it says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You've left your first love. 
That's, a, that's an incredible statement. Therefore, remember from where you fall and repent and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I will be coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of your midst unless you repent. Yet this you do have. This is interesting because they have a virtue, even though they've grown cold in a sense, and we'll get to that. But they still, in the midst of that, they have a virtue, and it's this. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Notice what Jesus says there about false teachers and false prophets. Nicolaitans is a really obscure cult uh, doctrinal system, belief, whatever you want to call it, false teachers. Uh, commentators don't know exactly what the belief was, but it was some sort of antinomian doctrine that led to the abandonment of, of, uh, of the gospel, some sort of antinomian uh, spirit, meaning lawlessness. And therefore, Jesus commends them because they didn't stand with, they didn't, they didn't put up with it, they didn't stand with it. But look at the end of verse 6. How does Jesus assess this? How does Jesus look at false religions? How does Jesus look at cults? How does Jesus look at Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons and Christadelphians and Christian science and that kind of stuff? Look at what he says. I also hate. I'm sorry. Will the real Jesus please stand up? People have a false idea of what Jesus is like in their mind. Oh, Jesus is just so tolerant. He just accepts everything. He just loves everybody. He just, you know, Jesus is just going to tolerate whatever doctrinal belief or system you can think of. No, 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 it's not text didn't say Oprah says this. It says Jesus says this. This is no, no Oprah Winfrey religion. You know? This is no uh, sort of compromising, pluralistic, relativistic religion, the type that we get from pop culture everywhere, even from professing Christians everywhere, it seems. The compromise is just everywhere. No, 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 no. Jesus understood that false religion is an assault on the souls of mankind. They are guilty of soul murder. These people are damning people to hell. Jesus doesn't want to sit down and have a conversation at Starbucks. He says, no, 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 no. I hate this religion. I hate this belief system. Wow, it's amazing. He who has an ear, no wonder it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and to him who overcomes by faith, by having sound faith, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I will refrain from the temptation to go into a full-blown uh, biblical theology on that. As some of you guys know how much I love that stuff. Notice the intertwining of the attributes, faith and love in this text. Turn with me in your Bibles to Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 6, because there... The Apostle Paul is telling this church to open up because not only does a, a healthy church consist of sound faith, it also consists of sound fellowship. Both of these things have to go together, brothers and sisters. They have to go together. They just cannot not go together. The Apostle Paul tells the people to open up their heart. He says in Second Cor. 6.11, our mouth has spoken freely, freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. So there you see, at least from the leadership perspective, from the pastoral perspective, his heart is open wide to them, which is saying what? We are transparent to you. We, we're not holding anything back. We genuinely love and have affection for you. And then he says, you are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. In other words, it's not an issue that we're doing to you, but you yourselves, for whatever reason, in your own affections, you are hindered. You're holding back in a sense. And he says, now in like exchange, I speak as to children. 
open wide also to us, or open to us also. What he's saying is reciprocity. There needs to be a mutual love, a mutual faith there. He says, back in Thessalonians, you always think kindly of us, longing to see us, just as also we long to see you. You know what's interesting about that text? After he commends them for their love and for their faith, he says they think kindly of him. That word kindly is actually the Greek word that simply means memory, which that's kind of interesting because why would they translate it like this? But it's memory, but it has some sort of goodness in it. And, and, and therefore, what the authors of Scripture, or what Paul is saying, is almost like that they have, you know, sort of a good remembrance of who they are. It's like the pastor's got to leave you with good memories. In other words, when you think of the apostolic ministry that this church received, it, 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 it sort of endeared the church to the apostle Paul. Turn to Romans chapter 1. I think probably the most significant text when we're talking about the, what many call the over and under relationship of pastor and sheep, pastor and member, is right here. This is a beautiful text. Romans 11, or excuse me, Romans chapter 1, verse 11, he says, For I long to see you that I might impart some spiritual gift to you so that you may be established. And then he explains what that means. What does that look like? Because right now we could be confused and say, well, I don't know how to do this. Impart some spiritual gift to you so that you may be established. So what does that mean? Verse 12. That is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. So there was this mutual edification. All biblical church ministry has to, listen to me now, has to result in mutual edification. It cannot just be that the pastor's happy because he gets to preach or he gets to teach and he gets to you know, uh, engage in biblical ministry and yet his people are miserable. Well, hopefully you're not miserable. We should have a mutual reciprocal love to one another. You should be just as edified as I am in the church. Healthy church membership consists of genuine faith, genuine love, and it also consists of genuine fellowship within the body. Why do I say genuine? Because look at uh, the language that he uses here. You also think kindly of us. And then here's a crucial word. You ready for this? Here is authentic Christianity longing to see us. You can't fake that. You can show up. You can put money in the box. You could tithe, you could sing, you can pray, but you can't fake longing. You either have it or you don't. You either long for the body or you don't long for the body. There's another word saying you either love the church or you don't love the church. Recently had a phone call. Dear, dear friends of mine, they are having a really hard time with the church that they're at. You know how many times people have called me with that phone call? I was like, oh, here we go again. I already got my script ready to go. I know what the council is. I'm stuck. I'm ready. And you know what? What I tell people often is, if you're leaving the church more bitter than blessed, it's time to go. It's time to go. Because that is not God's will for His people. His will is not that you come to church, you hear a message, and then you leave totally, you know, dissatisfied, discontent, unedified, 
If anything, tripped up, confused, bitter, anger, upset. No, that's not what church is supposed to be like. So then you have to examine yourself. Is there a problem with me or is there a problem with the church? And uh, those are some serious, mature things that we need to do in assessing our heart. They had a desire for Paul. They had a longing for him, for Timothy, for one another, and they were genuine in it. That's why Paul calls it, this is good news. That word there, good news, you know what it is? Uangelizo. Same thing as the gospel. It was good gospel news coming from that church. Let me move on to my second question. We have to ask the question, does a biblical church have a healthy view of the body? But here's another one. Does the church have a biblical healthy view of perseverance. I say that because of the next few verses, of course. It says in verse 7, For this reason, brethren, in all of our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith for, and this is such a beautiful verse here, and for, you, for now we really live if you stand firm in the faith, or in the Lord, rather, excuse me, if you stand firm in the Lord. And so obviously the question then comes to us, and we need to ask the question, what does it mean to stand firm in the Lord? The Apostle Paul apparently was comforted by this. He longed to see this in his church. He wanted to see the church stand fast. You know, Paul's aim in ministry was that he would have a ministry that would last, that there would be a church that would stand the test of time. And having already dealt with the faith of the church, the doctrine of the church, the, the, quality, the, the quality of that in a sense, now he thinks about the endurance of the church, the perseverance of the church, and he is comforted by them. You know what's remarkable about that? Is that here's a guy on the run, Paul. He's on the run because he's being persecuted because he's an apostle. He's known as a troublemaker among the Jews and the Romans. And here's a guy on the run. He's being persecuted. He's being driven from one city to the next. One city to the next. He can't stay anywhere. They found out Paul's there. Boom, man, they get a bunch of people. They, they get a mob going. They create a riot and they try to arrest him. They try to seize him and take him. Exactly what Jesus told him would happen to him in his apostolic ministry. And yet, where does Paul derive his comfort? Oh, man, this is how God-centered he was. He derived his comfort not from the alleviation of suffering, not from escaping persecution. He derived his comfort from the survival of the church, from the prosperity of the church, spiritually speaking. He was comforted because he knew a real church lives there. There's real faith Real goodness, real life there. And if they endure, guess what Paul says? I live. In other words, there's a pastoral vitality that comes from knowing that your people are doing good and that they are standing fast in the Lord. It's amazing. Paul always wanted to have his, 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 his ministry endure to the end. He was con- I'm, I'm convinced now, after studying Pauline theology for so long, I'm convinced Paul was obsessed with that. He was obsessed that he be not toiling in vain, laboring in vain, preaching in vain, laboring among the people in vain, pr- uh, teaching them, uh, discipling them, and doing everything, and suffering in vain. Because the faith 
of the church was not going to endure. Look at first, excuse me, Romans chapter 1. May I can just read it to you. Romans chapter 1, verse 13, that same context. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I've planned to come to you. So kind of similar with what we're dealing here, uh, dealing with here in, in Thessalonians. He wants to come to them. He's hindered from coming to them. He can't come to them. He wants to go to there. And then he says, I've been prevented so far. And why does he want to come to them? So that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I love it. Be greedy for fruit. Nothing wrong with that. I want to go over there to the Romans, to the Thessalonians, to the Ephesians. I want to go over there so that I can have some fruit over there. I want to partake of that field by preaching the gospel and advancing the kingdom of God among them. This is why he was comforted. But, but again, he was comforted because of their perseverance. He says, because they stand firm in the Lord. And what does that mean and how do you do it? What does that mean and how do you do it? How exactly do we stand firm in the Lord? And I'm going I'm to sort of overlap what I've already said here, but there's two things. And you look back at uh, chapter 2 of this book here. Right Towards the end there, verse 12, I want to use the metaphor of walking because he's already used that. He says, you know, he's doing everything that he's doing. He's encouraging and imploring them. Why? He says, he's being like a father to his children. Why? So that he would, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God. So in other words, we need to walk in two things in order to stand firm. You ready? Two things that will hold you together. Number one, walk in the truth. And so you cannot have a mature walk if you are not walking in the truth. If you do not stand firm in the truth, you can't stand firm with error. You just can't. And you know, one of the detriments today, is, sadly, in, in the church, is that, you know, it's hard enough to get people to commit to a local church, and then it's hard enough to get people to commit to sound doctrine in the church. I've been to churches and churches and churches... And a lot of times, everything is about being practical. Everything is about the devotional instead of the doctrinal, the theological. And and obviously, you know better because you're in this church and we've taught over and over, but this is a very unfortunate dichotomy. It should not exist in our mind. It's like B.B. Warfield. He was in seminary and a young man approached him once and said, Warfield, Benjamin, Why do you spend so much time laboring over those books? Don't you know you can be in your prayer closet praying all of those hours and getting a deep communion with God and getting intimate with God? To which Benjamin Warfield said, Why should I choose? He says, I will pray as I study. (laughs) It's not one or the other. It's not, well, you're not spiritual when you're studying your books. But you're only spiritual if you're praying, or when you're praying, you can't study your books. You know what I'm saying? There's a dichotomy between light and heat, head and heart. And that dichotomy is false. That's not the Christian worldview. We are called to worship the Lord our God with all of our mind, our heart, our soul, our strength. Jesus said it in Matthew 22. He says to worship God with all your mind. And therefore, we have to be devoted to the truth. I can't tell you by experience that some of the most 
glorious spiritual moments I've ever had in my life in, as a Christian have been through the rigorous study of theology, whether it's systematic theology or biblical theology or covenant theology or historical theology. Sometimes a truth lands on you so hard that it just opens up all of these glorious vistas of reality. I was reading a commentator once, and we were, I forgot where I was at, but the commentator and an academic commentary, I was so impressed by this that he actually mentioned this in his academic commentary, which they usually don't. He said once he was studying and he was getting into some of the things that we were studying there, he said it was the, you know, that he was so blown away basically by what he was studying that he, he didn't even know how, but he just found himself suddenly under his desk, just laying flat on the ground, just overwhelmed by the glory of the things that he was looking at. Same thing with us. That's why in the local church, brothers and sisters, be leery. Be leery that in the local church, that doctrine is not minimized. Yea, indeed, further than that, make sure that in the local church, doctrine is exalted, magnified, practiced, and implemented. It's complete opposite of what the world is telling you to do. I remember I had a guy tell me when I recently became saved and I was reading a book on apologetics. And because uh, I used to work with a bunch of Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and atheists and all this. And I remember a guy who's a lot older than me and a lot older than me in the faith. And he said something like, be careful, brother, with all the isms and schisms. Be careful with all the, all the doctrinal stuff and that doesn't go to your head, right? And it's almost like he was saying, you know, you little whippersnapper, right? <laughs> You'll find out that what you really need is to be a devotional Christian, Again, it's a very unfortunate dichotomy. That's why I challenged you not too long ago. I remember somewhere in the recess of my mind that I challenged you, and I asked you, what are you working on theologically, doctrinally? You know how many things I see in my theology, holes and gaps that I just, I don't know yet, right? I pick up this guy's book. He's so brilliant. He's so smart. He says this. I pick up this guy, equally brilliant, equally smart, equally educated. He says the opposite. And I'm sitting there going, what do I do between these guys? I'm not smarter than either of them. Is it hopeless? No. (laughs) Hopefully not. But hopefully you guys are going to be uh, living a life of study. But it's not just about walking in truth. Standing firm in the Lord also means walking in obedience to the Lord. What does the Lord mean? The Lord means master. The Lord means he is your sovereign. The Lord means He is in charge. You know, if He is the Lord, then we are the servant. We are the slave. We are His subjects, right? He's the Lord. He's in charge. He's the boss. I mean, to make it real easy and simple for the disciples, Jesus said, why do you keep calling me kurios and you do not do what I say to do? And therefore, those who know the truth have to walk in the truth. If you don't know the truth, this is what happens. You will be an infant in the faith. Hebrews chapter 5. And that's all pejorative. This is all negative. This is spoken not in a good tone. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11 and following. You will be an infant spiritually. If you don't have good doctrine, you know what will happen to you? You will be ignorant of great theological truths and realities, and you will be susceptible to heresy. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. In fact, it's dangerous to neglect the mind in worship because it will minimize the quality of your worship. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. 
And it's also detrimental for us not to learn how to contend for our faith. Jude, verse 3, to keep the faith, to keep the mystery of the faith, to increase in the knowledge of God. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Look with me at Philippians chapter 1 very quickly here. Philippians chapter 1 is a really important one, one that all of you need to memorize. You need to memorize this so that you can be balanced. Because the Apostle Paul here is focusing on love. But yet, notice the balance. In focusing in on love, he says, I pray this, that your love may abound. Sounds good. Sounds practical. It sounds devotional. And then he says, still more and more. What? How? In what? In real knowledge and in all discernment. You see that? Uh, Nowadays, if you try to discern, immediately people accuse you of being critically minded. Last time I checked this, what's wrong with being critically minded? Don't you want your doctor to be critically minded? Right? Don't you want your professor, your teacher at school to be, don't you want your mechanic to be critically minded? We want others to be critically minded so that we're, we know that we're proceeding safely. But when it comes to theology and doctrine, so many Christians have thrown in the towel. They don't want to be critically minded. It's almost like go to church and check your brain at the door. So wrong. No, 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 no. Paul did not accept such a dichotomy. But equally dangerous, however, is also a a, 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 a real danger here theologically, is if you're taking in all of this massive theological truth and mass amounts of doctrine, and yet you do not have any sort of practical expression of that doctrine in your life, you are in serious trouble. And we, listen, I... And no claim to perfect balance on this issue, trust me. But I have met brethren. Let me say this carefully. This might be the most dangerous thing I'm going to say today. Now I got all your attention, right? I've seen doctrine mess people up. I've seen doctrine mess people up. They're so smart up here, they become so introverted here. They don't even know how to hand out a gospel track. It's impossible. You know how many seminary professors are completely devoid of evangelism? Completely. And yet they can tell you that evangelism is the, erection, the, the erecting of a, of, a, of a temple to the Lord and that, that this is the expansion of the kingdom of God starting in Eden, going out to the ends of the earth until you get to the new heavens and the new... And they can tell you this incredible, elaborate thing they will not even witness to their neighbor. That's what I mean. It can have a detrimental effect if we don't keep our eyes on what Paul is talking about here in terms of faith and love both coming together. Here's my last thing. The last question is this. Does the church, therefore, have a biblical view of maturity? Notice why I say this. Go back to Thessalonians so we can see this. He says, for what thanks can be rendered to God for you in return of all the joy which, you, which we render before God on your account as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. And so what Paul is saying is he is eager to complete their faith, in other words, 
He wants to make them well-rounded Christians. He wants to teach them what they still don't know. He wants to fill in those parts of the faith that Paul knows this is essential for this church to survive. These are essential things uh, that need to take place here. Seminary students know this very well. They go through seminary, they get a degree, they've gotten trained, they know Greek, they know Hebrew, you know, they, they, they've gotten degrees in theology and doctrine, and they go into a church because they candidated, and they're looking for a job, and they go in and they find, and it's just a mess everywhere. It's just a mess everywhere, and that church needs to be completed. You don't know how many men that I know that were put in that exact situation that it was so messy that the church, when the pastor attempted to theologically and spiritually reform the church, they kick him out of the church. They're content being unhealthy. And therefore, I think what's needed above everything, again, is this sort of mutual reception of this, this mutual reciprocal relationship where on the one hand, the, 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 the pastors, the leaders of the church are intent on spiritual maturity, and on the other hand, the membership of the church is, hel- is healthy enough and humble enough to receive that instruction and to strive towards that health or towards that maturity themselves. It's everywhere in the Bible, this emphasis on maturity. It begins with obedience. This was part of Paul's entire ministry. Let me throw some verses at you, and I want you to turn to Colossians 4. As you turn to Colossians chapter 4, I want to remind you that this was, this was the ultimate objective for Paul as, a, as, a, as an apostle. The, these were his marching orders. He says in verse, Romans 5, you'll stay in Colossians 4, but I'm going to go to verse Romans 5, verse 5, where he says that he received the grace and apostleship for what reason? to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His namesake. The reason why I read that verse is because it shows us that obedience flows out of genuine faith. That's the grammar there. The grammar is subjective. In other words, the obedience he's talking about is a byproduct of the faith that he's produced through the gospel. It should go that way. This was Paul's ultimate ambition In Galatians chapter 4, he tells them, I am in labor until Christ is formed in you. Remarkable, remarkable language. A year in Colossians chapter 4, look at what it says there in verse 12. This is a very close parallel passage, and this is why I chose it, because it uses the language that that Paul is going to use here in terms of completion, that the same concept of standing firm. He says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bondslave of the Lord of, of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, uh, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Isn't that remarkable? That word that he uses there, fully assured in all the will of God, that word fully assured can mean something like totally convinced. Totally convinced so that you don't doubt, so that you don't waver. That's the point. And he labored, Paul labored night and day, he says, praying earnestly. This was the goal. This was the goal. 
Maturity has to produce obedience, but maturity also has to be part of the church's desire, as I mentioned already. It needs to be part of the desire to be made complete. Now look at that in verse 10 at the end there. He says the reason he wants to go to them, not just to reunite with them in fellowship, to see their face, but to complete what's lacking in your faith. So my question for us today, and as we think about this later on, ask yourself the question, do I want to be made complete? Do I want to grow? Do I want to fulfill the things that are lacking in my faith? We all are still on the path of discipleship, brothers and sisters. None of us have attained. And to show you this, this, this concept of, of completion, I want, to so, I want to show you this both negatively and positively. In 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1, we find the negative aspect of this. To be completed in faith means what? First, it means that we are protected from certain harmful attitudes and influences. Look at 1 Cor 1.10. It says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. Wow, that's a harmful, that's a harmful attitude, a harmful influence. Division. And he says, That you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. In other words, you know, that word complete there just speaks of being put in proper healthy order. But, but positively, this is also something that we need to be pursuing with other virtues. At the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, this is what Paul says. He says, finally, brethren, 2 Corinthians 13, 11, he says, finally, brethren, rejoice, and very simple, be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. I think the most important virtue that we can have in our life that can characterize and that can mark our walk in light of all of this that we've talked about today, the need for obedience, the need to stand firm, the need to be complete in Christ, you know what's the, just the, the absolute essential ingredient here? Humility. It takes humility to confess to one another that we need growth. It takes humility to acknowledge that we still need discipleship, that we still need to grow. Hey, look, I went person by person in this church and I asked you, can you define for me, what does the word propitiation mean? I just mentioned it, devotion in the Lord's Supper, so you're in real big trouble if you don't know now. But <laughs> what is the difference between definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification? What, what's the distinction between justification and sanctification? What does it mean to be, what, what does personal eschatology and cosmic eschatology mean? What is the makeup of man? Is man a dichotomy or a trichotomy? Do you know? See, if we don't ask ourselves these tough questions, if we are not willing to be discipled in these questions, it limits our capacity to teach one another. I don't want to be taught by a trichotomist. <laughs> a trichotomist is somebody that believes that human being is three parts. I am a dichotomist because I think that's the classic reform position and the biblical position even more importantly. I believe man is spiritual and body, uh, physical. I don't believe that he is a three 
component parts. But this is what I'm illustrating, is do we have this? And if you don't have this, you better not be neglecting the preaching of the church, the discipleship of the church, the Sunday schools of the church, the gatherings of the church, the men's study, the ladies' study, the, the, the fellowship of the brethren, and then whatever else you want to do from there on out because these are the things that will make you, that will ground you when the storms come and the heresies blow through the church. I mean, I'm hearing winds of things that are coming theologically in the church that people that we love, that we respect, like blowing through like famous people that we know and that I can drop names right now and you'd be like, wow, right? Um, Stuff that's probably on the horizon that's really kind of, you know, kind of, you know, heavy. And be like, where are people going to land on this stuff? Wow, this is why we need to be grounded. James tells us, in humility... Receive the word implanted because it is able to save your soul. You know what's so glorious about all of this is we think about the completion of our faith, the establishing of our faith, the grounding of our faith is that we're just means. Sunday school teacher, whoever's teaching the men's study, the ladies' study, whoever's preaching, whatever author you're reading, That's just a contour. It's just an instrument. It's a means by which God is the one actively doing things in your life. Do you believe that? I'm going to prove it to you, believe it or not. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. No, I mean I'm going to prove it to you. Hebrews chapter 13. And you're probably thinking of verses like, it is him who is active in you both to will, to do for his good pleasure, right? You have verses like that going on in your mind. Well, this is a parallel verse, but it's a good one because he actually uses the the same Greek word for completion, katarizo, that Thessalonians uses. It's in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. You ready? Now Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant even Jesus Christ our Lord, may that God, in other words, verse 21, there it is, katarizo, establish you, equip you, complete you in every good thing to do His will, working in us what is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And I better hurry up and end because I will preach that verse for another 20 minutes. (laughs) But it's so glorious because what that's saying is that in the means of all the instruments that God uses in our lives, praise God, this means my Father, my Heavenly Father, is personally and actively involved in the completion and in the establishment and in the maturity of my faith. And so no wonder Scripture calls us to be humble and to receive because it is the hand of God trying to shape you and mold you and conform you into the image of His Son. And so we have to avail ourselves to the means of grace that God has chosen to do that that, that incredible sanctifying work in our lives. Father, Lord, I do ask and pray that Your hand would not be hindered that your power would not be hindered in our lives because of our own stupidity, because of our own hard-heartedness, because of our own neglect, because of our own pride. Lord, you speak to 
through so many different people. You spoke through a donkey. And you speak through foolish vessels.